Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. As is often the case with my guests, there's a certain mirroring to my own journey, not through the whole thing, but just certain elements. And the, the part that I really want to highlight from this chat today is the, uh, the part that Dixie mentions around the, the, the unresolved and, and unknown stuff from prior to her big moment of grief that she realized came to the surface once she started getting uh, counseling for the, the moment that she'd been through. It really shows how much not just our moment of grief impacts us, but but everything related to that, everything that comes flooding to the surface. Uh, Dixie became a widow uh, 25 years ago and she shares her story of how of the challenges that came also that what came up from her previous divorce and, and past patterns from her upbringing. It's a real powerful one around finding more of that purpose of the benefits, the positives of a midlife crisis, whether that's through uh, losing someone or another major life event, and then how you navigate that going forward afterwards. Enjoy this chat with Dixie Carlton. Hey everyone, and welcome to my guest this week, Dixie Carlton. How are you, Dixie? Yeah, great. Thanks, Ian. How are you going? Great. Thanks, to, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, already got a little dropout, so hopefully that audio keeps up, but we'll, we will persist and see how we go. Uh, now, generally in your line of work, you're helping other people to tell their stories. So it's an honour for me to help you share your story today. And we're going back for your big moment 25, 26 years ago. Share for the listeners what unfolded for you and the impact that had. Well, I was um, happily married to my second husband. Um, I had a seven-year-old son. We were working on having another baby. Um, we'd been together seven years. We'd recently got married uh, about nine months earlier. And uh, he fell sick unexpectedly. Uh, had a mystery illness, and it was all very uh, unusual and weird, and no one knew what was going on. And uh, we then found out we were pregnant, and then a few weeks after that, it was all over Rover. He unfortunately passed away after uh, a fairly short battle with some um, unknown, at the time, illness, mystery illness. So I had to suddenly pick up my, my boots and carry on and figure out life at that point, at the age of 31. Wow. So... You say mystery, like, did you eventually find out what had happened? They did find out that it was a funny story, sort of. Um, the reality was, was that he had been on antibiotics a few weeks earlier and, like many people, didn't take the full course of antibiotics. And many of us have a something often sort of lingering inside of us um, an autoimmune um, situation that's waiting to flare up and in this instance the not taking the full course of antibiotics was the trigger for that to basically flare up and it was an unusual illness uh, something called dermatomyositis which affected his organs and because it's something that doesn't normally affect young fit healthy 40 year olds it was something that uh, took a while to, to diagnose and they still didn't really confirm the diagnosis until after he passed away. So uh, it was one of those touch and go, we're not sure what's happening, induced comas. Uh, that all happened over about three or four weeks. Um, the whole process from start to finish of the first sniffles and not being well was um, five weeks until then he passed away. 
So it was fairly sudden, really. Now, I know that there's no comparison and, and there's no, I guess, having more time doesn't necessarily make the loss any better or worse or anything. Just the the speed of how that unfolded, how did that, was that significant for you in, in terms of uh, making sense of it? It was, uh, and that's a great question. Um, it was one of those things, and over the many years since, I've had an opportunity to talk to people, and I am possibly a little Pollyanna-ish by nature, but I remember thinking at the time that, uh, and many times later, that it was good to have had that little buffer of five weeks, five or six weeks, um, from start to finish of your life suddenly turning upside down, um, as opposed to a knock on the door because someone had an accident, which... Yeah, right in many ways is devastating. Um, also, um, you know, silver lining in that it wasn't something that lingered on for several years where everything declined and it's such the life and the love and, and you know, the, the, the ability to continue to pick yourself up. So we were lucky in that respect. There was also the reality that I could look back and say, this was a really happy man who felt that he had achieved everything he'd wanted to achieve. Because I remembered we'd driven down the road, you know, towards home after a long weekend away just a few yeah. weeks earlier. And he'd driven slowly up the road. And I remember saying to him, come on, why are, we, why are you driving so slow? Come on, we've been away for three days. Let's just get home. And he said, I just want to take it in. I love where we live. I love my life. I am so happy right now. And I'm just taking it all in. And this was just a few weeks before he passed away. So I knew wow. how much of a great place he was in. And he would have been miserable had he been someone who had to sort of deal with two or three years of lingering, ongoing issues. So mm. there were little highlights, little moments that you could look back on and say, well, thank you, universe. That was actually an okay way for that to have unfolded in mm. some ways. Yeah, and I, uh, one of my staff that I was managing back in my corporate days, uh, we'd done – him and I had done a fair bit of work on himself and he'd overcome a heap of stuff and, and his life was just like like you described then. For the first time, he was happy. He had, he had a new girlfriend and so he's 25 and then same thing, he dies really suddenly like in a fun run and, and it's like struggling to make sense of that. That's eventually where I landed a few years later was like, well, maybe, maybe he had everything that he ever wanted in life. Mm, and I don't know the, yeah, and I don't know the, the details of that. And I don't, I don't begin to profess that I understand it. But it to me, it's just a, it's a way for me to make sense of something that doesn't like a twenty-five-year-old man just suddenly dropping dead like it's not. So I, I don't know if that resonates to you about like the 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 trying to uh, make sense of it in the years that passed. Look, you know, I think you, you go through a lot when you go through something like this and you start to try and figure out lots of ways to make sense of life, death, everything in between. Yeah. And one of the things that I've concluded as part of my ongoing life is the fact that, you know, you're here for a reason and sometimes when your purpose is complete, it's time for you to move on. And maybe the whole purpose of my experiencing that and him being in my life up to that point was to ensure that my life then unfolded the way it did beyond that and my children as well and um, my son uh, my youngest son said a couple of really interesting things to me when he first said it when he was about 12 years old maybe a little bit younger 10 or 12 and the second time he said it he was about 16 and he said to me mum I'm okay that dad's not here because as much as I know we would have been great together, I would have loved him and, you know, he was a really great dad and all that. Um, and he was a good dad to, to, to his older brother. The fact that, so, so Alex said to me, I'm okay that he's not here because if he was, my life would be so different. Hmm. And then he recounted all of the reasons why he thought his life would be so different and how he was completely happy my life is the way this is. I have the relationships I have with you, my brother, my nana, 
and and myself based on how this is if he was here it would be different and i'm okay with how it is i thought it was incredibly profound for a young boy to say and then for him to repeat that a few years later but that also helps to make sense of what happens and i feel the same way oh i got goosebumps all through that like to me that says two things that like that's an old soul who who knows what's what right but it also it's a real sign of his mum having gone through something and done a heap of work on herself because that doesn't happen by accident right like i've had i've had other parents say to me specifically around uh football around you know like the the attitude of my son right rather than anything to do with his ability but his attitude and it's like yeah well that's like i can safely say now that's not an accident like mm-hmm. i was doing a really bad job of being a parent up until the point when my dad passed and like you like you talked about there it's like you want to change so you do and things get better and it's like then that gets passed on to your children and that to me that's the greatest gift of of mm-hmm. going through this sort of grief and then coming out the other side and working on yourself to be better. Does that does that sort of resonate for you as well? It really does. And I look back and I know, and interestingly enough, I have a couple of really good friends who are still in the same situation that they started out in at around that time. So for example, one of my husband's really good friends, um, you know, we were, we were good friends, you know, him and his wife, and we all sort of used to socialize together. Well, they've now just re- reached retirement stage, and they're doing. They, they've done the, you know, the beach house and the, you know, very wealthy, ex- extravagant, you know, fabulous lifestyle and income that they've built up over the last 25, 30 years. Um, so they've kind of followed that proje- that trajectory that I've been able to sit back and say, I would have been that same kind. We would have been that life if this hadn't happened, and I'm happier knowing that my life happened this way. Or am I happier knowing that my life happened? What might have, you know, would I have been happier um, as the, you know, long-term corporate existence, you know, executive wife? And the reality is, I'm actually happier the way this has worked out. I don't think I would have been a very happy long-term, you know, executive wife <laughs> for thirty odd years. Different sort of scenario, and it's interesting to be able to look at that. Um, and and observe that, but hey, it's uh, it's it's wonderful to be able to have that ability to reflect that way. That doesn't mean that it wasn't incredibly difficult, but with time comes perspective, and with time comes the ability to deal with those grief issues. And um, um, yes, I could go. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, it's twenty five years for me. 25, 26 years coming up, but some years it's still a big thing. Some years you, you're hit by the reality of, well, this is what life would have been like. I wonder if we would still have been happily married. I wonder if we would still have been doing this. If, if we had been living the way, you know, the, that long-term trajectory would have been, would that have made us better people, happier people? Would having more children, therefore, um, which would have obviously happened, would that have made us happier people? Um, would the lack of fulfilment in the career that I wouldn't have had been better or worse? So there's lots of ways that you look at it with, with hindsight. But to be honest, too, it took me nearly 18 years to actually stop just putting one foot in front of the other and realise that, yeah, that was tough. That was really tough. And I hadn't really thought about it until... Yeah, around 18 years later, when the kids were no longer needing me to be the same kind of mother that I was when they were younger. Yeah. Um, I'll come back to that. I, I got a bit distracted there because I was drawn to a conversation we had. So we'll get to more of what you do, but but you're, you you help people to publish their their nonfiction books and and you run a monthly call which I was on and we talked about this same subject right and I wanted to find your exact quote because I wrote it down, but it was okay. like it was like to words to the effect of the purpose of the midlife crisis is to put us on the path that we were born to be on, 
Yes. And and you, you talked about then around your own journey and it's, and and even like what your son was saying. It's like mm. we can we can waste our years thinking about how things could have been and and stuck in our own misery around what's happened or we can say well i want things to be different i'm going to use i'm going to honor the memory of this person and i'm going to do the best i can to to make sure that yeah that i've given it absolutely everything i have and in what's not a infinite time here on earth yeah that's that's really good way of putting it yeah there's nothing like um, I was talking to someone just today in fact uh, an elderly lady who mentioned that she has outlived her parents uh, lifespan and you know I've now outlived my husband by 17 years on where he got to and so that as well is something that makes you think well okay there's, there's no time to waste you know, sitting in and not making the most of that extra time is almost blasphemous, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I would have lived much the same life as what you described without that happening. I would have continued down the path I was on, uh, mm. flogging my, you know, myself in, in a corporate world and my children would have missed out and my wife would have missed out and other people in my life would have missed out because I would have just kept going that same trajectory. And um, yeah, I, I, again, it's a product of someone who's done a, a fair bit on themselves to, to have that realization. So um, yeah, that's, that's awesome, Dixie. Someone said to me uh, a few years ago, everyone has some form of cancer. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you don't get to midlife or through midlife without having something that trips you up and you know whether it is cancer for real or whether it's yeah. some other so whether it's your best friend dying or your partner or your or a child or a or a major calamity of some description yeah at some point you will reach that crossroads of moments where you have to sit and decide who you are and who you want to be and yeah. sometimes it takes that massive earthquake under your feet for you to actually sit and say okay time to change and you know you you get to midlife or late life by good luck not by good management uh, sorry more by good luck than by good management and then you've got to figure out what you're going to do with the the lessons that you pick up along the way because everything's a crossroads moment if you look at it in some ways yeah, yeah absolutely we uh our life's determined by how the decisions we make in every moment or decisions we don't make now, Absolutely. yeah, you mentioned before we jumped on that you, you'd been through a really messy divorce, um, and you but you had a child, and you, you talked about your younger son before, but your older son, um, mm. a son, right? Yes, two yeah, sons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you said one of the hardest parts when when your um, second husband died was having to tell yeah well, having to tell your, um, your eldest. I I was under a fairly abusive. Um, first husband and we had a son and um, through the years that I was with Christopher um, you know he was a big part of helping us to mend and pick ourselves up and you know move forward from that um, I was yeah. I came out of first marriage diagnosed with depression um, you know it, it was tough um, probably the, the tougher time you know looking back was those years rather or that marriage ending and the calamitous results of being in, in such a toxic relationship. By comparison, surviving widowhood was completely different, but but easier on so many levels. You know, you don't have to sort of sit there and divide up the crockery and throw plates at each other and, and have all that terrible memory um, to have to deal with. You've only got good memories if you're lucky. Um, so it's a completely different sort of situation. But Christopher had been our rock and he picked us up and, and he was a great dad to, to my son, my older son. Um, so when it all unfolded, and of course we didn't realise that he was going to die, we, we thought he was going to get better and it all kind of happened fairly quickly at the end. Um, I was talking with um, my, my late husband's best friend and his wife just a few nights ago about what it was like because when Chris passed away 
um, his best friend came and picked me up in the middle of the night because the doctors called and said, you know, he's just gone. Um, and so they came, uh, picked him up, uh, picked me up, took me to the hospital, and the other friend came and picked up my older son, and um, you know, relocated him back to to their house for the night. And so he knew in the morning that something had happened because we were both sleeping at you know at their house, and. So I had to sit down in the morning and tell him what had happened. And this seven-year-old, whose life I knew was about to be completely devastated, um, I was literally stuck for words. I know when people say now, I was stuck for words or, you know, the words wouldn't come out, the words would not come out. And I've never had trouble saying anything in my life, but the words would not form in my mouth. And I remember working in my head on what I what I had to actually speak and then saying it. And but yeah, the, that was the hardest thing. And I still everything in my whole life, through all ups and downs, that is still the single hardest thing I've ever had to do was to tell him. And it was interesting. I mean, we were very tight. Um, the two of us and then of course my next son was son arrived and the three of us have always been incredibly tight as a small family who rely on each other and um, again you know going back to what my youngest son said hey you know I'm okay with the way life turned out because the relationships that I have with you my brother and my nana um, testament to how well we all handled all of that going forward but you know, I'm quite convinced that we had, you know, Christopher sort of in the background there somehow watching out for us, making sure we got through the arguments and the times that were stressful and the, the moments of indecision and things that you have, you know, as you go through life. Completely convinced that he was there, just watching over us and making sure that, you know, things were okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but black humour, let me just talk about that for a moment. I yeah. had the most hilarious conversations with other widows and widowers who have talked about the weird things that happen or the way people responded or the way things unfolded and the hilarity that sometimes comes with those bumps in the night. And there really are bumps in the night. So, you know, that's funny. And you and you do find some, some solace in that humour and... Um, and my husband was a ridiculously over-the-top practical joker. So um, when we, when during the funeral, which was packed, and I spoke at the funeral, um, and he was well known for being a very, very good practical joker. Yeah. And my my mother and I both spoke at the funeral, and um, and she said that you know mentioned that I was pregnant. Um, and I remember a few people saying afterwards, oh, that, that's because oh, that's right, Alex was due to be born on the 1st of April. And we said that. And people <laughs> thought that was a practical joke. They thought, oh, that's really off color. Like, <laughs> that's terrible. Oh, you know, Dixie, that's that's just, you know, going too far. And and so people didn't necessarily believe it. They thought that someone was taking, this, taking the mickey. I was like, oh my God, really? So that's another one of those funny things that just happened. It's like, oh, but you're really pregnant? Oh, my God, how does that work? (laughs) Well, let me talk you through it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, I I relate to a lot of that, the the having to call my siblings to try and speak and no words coming out, the... um, the humour, like I can remember, you know, after my dad passed, we were all sitting there in the waiting room and it was a mixture of tears and then laughter and, like, it's just a great coping mechanism. I think the only problem, time it comes a problem is when people feel bad about having moments of humour or even happiness in and amongst that. It's like, no, it's just part of the process and it's okay. So uh, thank you for shining a lot on that. Um, can... I'm going to come back to the bumps in the night because it also seems to come up with anyone that is on here and has had someone that, that passed. But um, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd just like to, to ask more about the like the, that time because if it happened quickly, you said he was in a coma, induced coma or? 
yeah-induced coma. Yeah. So, so when you go home that night, is there any expectation or possibility that you might get that phone call? No, there wasn't. Because um, if there was, I would have stayed at the hospital that night. Um, yeah. There was no, there was no awareness that that was going to happen. Well, in hindsight, there probably was, but um, because the doctor uh, that we spoke to that afternoon uh, was quite emotionally distraught. Um, but also yeah. bearing in mind, um, Princess Diana had died two days earlier. So everyone was on edge about lots of things. And um, we knew that there was another young woman in the intensive care unit who was also dealing with a mystery illness because her husband and I would have conversations in the corridor. So, you know, I didn't necessarily read into the doctor being quite upset that afternoon enough to realise that, hey, we're at a critical, really critical point. Because um, if I had, I would have stayed at the hospital and not gone home. Um, so when I got the call at midnight, uh, at, at 10.30, uh, there was not that realisation that it was going to happen. There was not that kind of wake up feeling of, oh, something's wrong. Um, there was just this disbelief. Um, so, so, you know, the, the bumps in the night and, and the, the oddities that came up, came up later, and I firmly believe this, but some of my journeys post um, entering the journey of widowhood was an awareness that when people pass over, if it's unexpected, they'll hang around for quite a long time because they want to be, well, I'll rephrase that, they hang around because sometimes they're not aware that they've died. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I hope that's not too out there for a lot of people, but I know. Um, this, this if, podcast, it'll be uh, right on point. Yeah. If, if someone's died suddenly, often they don't realize that that's what's happened. And if they have expected to pass away, they may only hang around in spirit till after the funeral. Um, just to kind of make sure everything's okay and kind of out of curiosity more than anything. Hmm. Um, but if it's unexpected, they may stay for quite a lot longer because they'll feel that they have still got unfinished business. But it also takes them a while to realise in spirit that they're the person in the coffin or that they're the person who's not there. And, and that's a very strange uh, awareness to have. And there are a few things that happened around the time uh, those few days after Chris died that made me very aware of that. Yeah, like, oh, can, you, just, can you share? Well, um, he, we, we went to the funeral home and um, we were standing there, sort of um, me, my mother, and there were a couple of other people with us. And I just remember seeing him standing in the room with his arms folded, looking really, you know, downcast like he was, you know, sad and wondering who, who, who we were there to see. And I remember saying to my mother, Chris is here and he's really curious about who, who died. And she looked at me as if I had rocks in my head, which is understandable. Yeah. Um, and it was everybody thought I was just, you know, probably going to go off the deep end, um, which I didn't. But, um, if, you know, there was a conscious awareness of everyone watching me because most of our close friends knew that I had depression, had dealt with depression as well. But um, but I just remember him being there and very clearly seeing him standing there wondering who had died. And then um, and there were little funny things at the funeral and, and later that made me realise that that was... Uh, that, that was his way of dealing with it was what's going on here like you know who is this what's happened hmm. and i he he kind of hung around for about five years five and a half years to be exact i don't know if we have time for me to tell you the the, the other unusual bit of the story but um, yeah yeah please do so um about five and a half years after he died uh, I had gotten used to him turning up every now and then, sort of feeling like he was sitting there in the car with me talking or, you know, feeling him, you know, walk into the kitchen and, you know, say, are you okay? Are you happy, honey? Things like that. Um, being aware that my baby in particular 
was often aware of someone in the room and would laugh and have you know funny things go on so i knew that he was around and i just got used to that and i thought oh maybe that's what's always happening and i remember a couple of times going out on a couple of dates and thinking okay well you just need to kind of not be here today no 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 peeking in you know and um, and having a bit of, of a laugh about it but five and a half years after he died i was speaking at an event the next morning but i woke up having had a dream that he was going on holiday without me and he was going on holiday in his car um and that he was going to leave me behind i was like well hang on that's not fair and i remember waking up with this really strong feeling about that well i've never dreamt about him before and i was Mm. speaking at an event the next day and there was a psychic or a woman who was renowned to be psychic at that point um there uh, also in the lineup for the speakers. And at morning tea time, I said, hey, I had this really weird dream last night, you know, and I really briefly told her what, what it was. And without actually telling her that, you know, I was dreaming about my deceased husband, I just said, oh, my husband's you know, wanting to go on holiday without me, and I was dreaming about this. And she said, oh, honey, it's time to let him go. He's got he's to move on now. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I told her that over the day and went home that night and it was a Tuesday night and my mother always had my sons on a Tuesday night so I could go walking with my neighbour down the river on the on a Wednesday morning and so Wednesday morning rolls around and I get up and I go down to the bottom of the street to walk with my neighbour and she doesn't turn up and so I went up to her house uh, to her front door and I knocked on the door and she didn't answer and I thought oh that's really strange turns out later She'd never slept in before, but she slept in, never didn't hear the door knocking. It was like someone had just said, hey, you know, check it out for a minute. But that was all very strange part of it. But she didn't hear me and she didn't wake up and she was late for work that day. First time ever in her life. <laughs> anyway, I get down to the bottom of the street and turn onto the river walkway and I feel him very strongly come in and walk with me. Yeah. more strongly than normal and you know he's walking along and he's telling me how proud he is of me and the kids and you know how how you know how much he loves us and all that and we get to the end of the walkway and he gives me this beautiful big hug and then he literally walks into the light and he's like wow. okay that's beautiful and I remember feeling this incredible weight lift off me so tears streaming down all the way home get home and I'm having having these messages of well you know it was his time and all that sort of thing so that was okay and I'm feeling light and I'm recognizing the difference between my grief and his grief over the Mm. past few years so that was the first really big thing and then um you know I'm walking home uh, and I'm realizing, you know, I'm, you know, tears and all that sort of thing. And I'm seeing kind of signs of togetherness, like trees merge into, you know, three trees merge into one big tree, things like that. And I'm thinking, well, that's yeah, really yeah. strange. Um, so symbolic things happening. And then um, I get home and I realize I haven't seen another single soul down the river that whole morning. And normally it's full. Like, yeah. you know, it's busy town, busy walkway, lovely river walk, and I never saw another single soul that whole morning. I thought, oh, that was really strange too, and with Kate not being there. And so all of these things happened, and then um, that was kind of the beginning of a very, very powerful spiritual journey for me to start walking through, um, which kind of uh, involved other beings coming in and, and starting to help me to understand a lot of things about life and death and hereafter. So that was a very interesting time. But about two years later, I was standing in the kitchen, kind of half pie watching TV with, you know, the kids while I was watching, while I was cooking dinner, and the Ghost Whisperer program started. It was a pilot program. So this was before, this had all happened before that program. And if you've ever seen it, at the end of the Ghost Whisperer episodes, there would always be the walk into the light moment. And I remember standing there, probably my mouth wide open, just rigid thinking, oh my God, that's exactly what it looked like. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, whoever created this show has obviously experienced that because that was exactly what it was like. And it was such a revelation to me realized that, um, to, to a greater degree, again, that I hadn't just imagined it all. It had been yeah. so extraordinary. So yeah. those sort of things helped with the whole grieving process for me over the years. 
this understanding of you know the timing and and the the gifts and all the parts that went with it it was amazing yeah 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 and and that's the important part is like if anyone's listening to these stories because it comes up with lots of guests who have lost people to death um is that validation comes in some form i'm just thinking back to a client who was um who was sitting on the bed talking to their partner and uh and suddenly there's someone else sitting there too and Mm -hmm. she's like look i don't want to freak you out but there's someone else here with us and he's a he's a young guy about 21 22 and he says he knows you and um and says there was an accident and, and he just wanted to let you know that he's okay and and so he she said his partner just like was like look like well looked like a ghost but went turned white and she and he's like how do you know that and she's like i don't know i'm just telling you what i'm what i'm getting told he his mate had died in a um in a rugby game at that age and she was describing him and describing him exactly as he looked of course and and again it's that it's that validation piece that if we if we're open to receiving it we we will receive it mm-hmm. and making sense of it how any way you want but this, i say this every time there's so much value in having that belief that, that there can be that contact and why would you not want to be able yeah. to have that um and, and- and understanding too that sometimes the grief that you feel, you know, the overwhelming level of grief that sometimes you feel is not only your own grief, but sometimes it's also their grief. Yeah. Their grief of not being with you. Their grief of seeing you so distraught. You know? Oh, I was actually gonna ask you that because I was I was really struck by what you were saying there when you were talking about being in that space and and your um, Chris's best friend being there is like, how, how were you conscious already at that point that you were kind of, um, you've just lost your husband, but you were kind of supporting him at that time? In, in, in no, no, that, I wasn't really. I, I was very uh, self-absorbed at that point. I was yeah. just focused on well, what am I going to do now? And how am I going to tell our son? And you know, there's another baby. And you know, I, I went into a very, very strong mode of self-absorption around that time um, for for a while. Yeah. You mentioned you had depression. So did the depression start like you said you had a messy divorce not long after the messy divorce, or was it? Yeah. Uh, that was manifested by a very toxic relationship that I was in with my first husband. Yeah, right. So how long did that take to, to manifest? Um, well, we were married for five years, four years, um, four and a half years, and um, his narcissism revealed itself in quite revolting ways uh, very soon after we married because we went overseas for a while. So, um, so by the time we returned from that trip, I was fairly well under the thumb and unaware of just how much I was. And so when it all kind of went to custard, um, about four years later, uh, our, our son was one at the time. Um, and and so I met Chris about eight months after that. Um, but I had, I was diagnosed around about that same point um, of the, that separation. And I had two and a half years, nearly three years with a psychologist on a very regular basis to just start working through things. But I'd had a fairly rough upbringing as well. So there were lots of things that needed to be unpacked overall. And, you know, there's, there's so much truth to the the fairly glibly said these days, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What doesn't kill you really does give you strength. And when you go through big things anyway, you are more prepared for dealing with the next big things. Yeah. Like you know, the, the fact that I had managed to survive um, uh, some pretty awful stuff in those earlier years of my 20s meant that I was in a much better position to actually have some framing to put around then being a single parent in a widowed situation. It was a totally different drama, but, and, and as I said, in some ways, 
going through the really awful divorce was easy, was harder than going through a widowhood situation where there had been such love and care and support and I had been blessed to have had, you know, seven years with someone who had been such a great part of rebuilding me or helping me to rebuild and my son and I to reintegrate uh, and navigate our way through that post horrible divorce situation. So we were both stronger for that. And when you don't have to sort of suddenly, you know, worry about whether you can afford to feed yourself or whether you, you know, going to have to, you know, split up the furniture and, and battle over the baby, there's, there's a, a different way to approach how you cope with that. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it does make you stronger. And everything yeah. that you go through in your whole life takes you to the next point. You know, I was thinking about um, this point when I was um, waiting to come on to this call today. When you go through big stuff, when you have faced up to your worst possible nightmare, you really do not ever sweat the small stuff. You know, you, you view the big things that come along that would trip up other people in a completely different way because you have a better understanding of what your strengths are. And when I said before, you know, some years it's still a big thing. You know, the, the biggest thing that, that I say to anyone going through a major grief situation now, and, and I do get to talk to a lot of people about this, is that you have to understand that it doesn't, um, doesn't solve itself. It doesn't resolve. But time does actually make it more manageable. You, time makes it that you can then start to look back on the good things with less fear of looking and, and addressing that good stuff. And you have to trust in the process of time as part of dealing with that grief. You know, grief happens over a long period of time because I think you need to be able to process things at the right pace for yourself. But you never sweat the small stuff, you never cry over spilt milk when you've gone through dealing with the biggest things you could possibly deal with. And you're critically aware of that at various points in your life. You know, like I had a, um, a, a situation with my older son that lasted a couple of years where he was also in a toxic relationship and it, it impacted on our relationship for a couple of years. Thankfully, it has passed. Thankfully, it has resolved itself and I have my son back. But you realize once again, well, I've already survived the worst possible thing I could possibly imagine. I can survive this. I can deal with this next thing. If I'm yeah. going to have to deal with this other big thing, or if I'm going to have to help someone else deal with this other big thing, I know what it looks like. I know how to put that level of respect into what I need to do going forward to enable my ability to survive a something if this goes wrong. So it, it impacts yeah. you, it changes you, but it, it shapes So, Dixie, that depression you said manifested after the divorce, like what impact did it have on you? Like what, what were you then unable to do that you previously had been able to? Um, you mean while I was still dealing with that? Before yeah, like, so, yeah, so did it just stop you in your tracks? Um, like, what, what, what impact um, did it have on you physically, mentally, emotionally? Like, what? I, my weight plummeted. I was, um, I saw some photos of myself recently, and I remember thinking, oh my God, I look like a starving Biafran, as my mother used to say when I was, you know, there were children starving in Africa, and you look like one of the starving Biafrans we just saw. Uh, yeah, so I, I, um, I, my weight plummeted, I, my confidence was incredibly uh, non-existent, but it had been mm. for a while. I mean, I'd been eroded quite effectively by this person. Um, but I, you know, eventually came back. When Chris died, I was then worried. I remember saying to my doctor, does this mean I'm going to have to go back to dealing with mm. depression? Yeah. And he said, well, I think you've come a long way and I think you'll be okay. But he said, you just need to remember that this is something that you'll always live with. At some level, you just need to be, you know, continuing to work on your triggers. 
and that was great advice because I was worried. And then, as I say, after you know that morning when Chris kind of did the passing over thing, um, I remember feeling that incredible lifting of weight and realizing that I had distinguished really well over the years between depression, grief, my grief, and his grief. And that morning, it was really clear to me what those differences were, because I could sort of almost identify them in a tangible way. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I still, like most people, um, I still live with depression. I still am mindful of my mental health on a regular basis. Winter is not a particularly good time for me, but I still um, check in with myself. And if I'm worried, then I know how to deal with it. Um, but it's been a journey. The, the entire last 30 years has been quite a journey. Mm, uh, sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned that when you saw the psychologist after uh, your marriage breakup, that there was a lot of previous stuff. I, I'd love to ask questions about that if I can, because I know that was my experience. And I think it's the, it's the part of grief that's not talked about enough. It's, it's not just the moment and that particular moment but it's everything else that drags to the surface as a result so is there anything from that you can share about what did come up and how you are able to process and move past that as well um well interesting um yeah i'm, I'm, I'm okay to talk about that because i can't think of myself as being an open book you know whatever comes up in my life i'm i'm sure i've experienced them because there's a purpose in my then being able to relate them in some yeah. way on my ability to understand certain things in life. So I grew up in a, um, as a, um, uh, the eldest child in a fairly small family and my mother was divorced and then she took, took up with someone who was quite violent. Um, but she was also uh, quite inept at certain levels of parenting. So I've kind of parented her for the last 45 years or so, since I was You're about right. eight years old. Um, and also being quite responsible for my, my younger siblings in those years too. So as a result of that, um, I went off the rails a bit when I was a teenager and um, you know, dropped out of school and did some silly things and, and all that sort of thing. and. Um, I've only recently, very recently, been diagnosed with ADHD. And so when I look back now, I look at some of that and some of those times when I was perhaps uh, blessed to have a short attention span, but also cursed with the heavy levels of responsibility that were placed on me as a, at a young age. And I look at what my teens then ended up being like, and I can see that... Uh, by good luck, not by good management, I got through that, um, which is probably why I, I married young and, and, you know, didn't actually realise that my confidence was being compromised so much in that time. Um, so I I see that as a superpower in many ways. It's, it's you know, made me um, quite hyper alert to things and quite focused on, at, at different levels on things. But when I was dealing with the depression in that first round, because um, a couple of times I've gone back to see psychologists again just to kind of, I guess, check in and make sure that I'm actually not not, not going nuts, um, when a couple of big things happened um, that are relevant to this conversation. But, um, you know, every now and then you get an opportunity to go and sort of just check in and say, well, is everything okay? Am I actually, you know, all right? Um, but I look back and can see that when I did the, the therapy with a psychologist in my 20s, that we unpacked a lot of stuff around relationships with my parents um, and then how that related to my expectations of what my marriage should have been like. Mm, um, great point, great point. Why I was willing to put up with so much awful stuff when what I had observed was violence and separation and um, lack of communication and also had this attitude of, um, well, one thing, uh, if he ever hits me, I'm out, 
was my mantra. Like, oh, if, mm. if, you know, if Manny ever hits me, oh, you know, I'm not going to put up with that because I'd seen that in my mother's life. Mm. And it took until the very last of this toxic, horrible relationship for me to then finally realise when he finally did hit me that he'd actually been beating me savagely with words for a very long time and I should have actually woken up to that earlier. Mm. But also because I was this child of divorce in the 1970s, um, which wasn't necessarily well managed or thought of in those days, um, that I had this expectation of myself that, well, I'm, I'm, I have to make this work. You know, mm. I have to, this is the bed I made for myself. I have to make this work. I'm not going to be like my mother. Again, you know, so you, you realise when you unpack things that there's lots and lots of conditioning that you have as a child that yeah. uh, if we understood... So I've just written a book about values, and I just yep. want to say this. I've just written a book about values and understanding what your core values and your, and your needs are, and it's due out fairly soon. But in writing that, in understanding that, I've realised that if we taught our children to better understand our own values and also to understand other people's values are always the same as yours, that yeah. there is an easier understanding of why people are bullies, why people, you know, where narcissists sit on that spectrum of, you know, caring or empathy, um, yeah. and also why it's important for us to understand our values so we can make decisions better about how we're treated and what we're prepared to put up with. And I'd love to see people having those conversations with more kids because I think yeah. if I had that, that sort of understanding as a child my life would have been very different but hey my life is the way it's supposed to have been and it's worked out the way it's supposed to be yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. okay now I've learned those things maybe now I can make you know more sense of those things as I reflect on them occasionally yeah and then as you said help other people to to see that reflect on it as well because like you rightly pointed out you can't see it when you're in it it's not until later when it's suddenly when you have that epiphany and you're like, oh man, how did I not see this? <laughs> exactly. Yet, you're just not yeah. ready. You're not ready to see it. Um, but like, and even what you described there is realizing that when he did beat you, that actually he'd been beating you the whole time. Some people don't even realize then. Yeah. And, and that's okay. It's just, it's a product of exactly as you described. It was such a great description of how much what had unfolded for you as your in your childhood just manifested and even just the it's either you repeat what you saw and you had modeled to you or you make a conscious decision to go the opposite which is not necessarily the best option either that's right and i did both Duh. yeah well, i think we all do i think we all yeah. do to a certain degree it just depends on what the and what that uh what the upbringing was like and 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 i love what you described there about like helping understand why people are the way they are they are not so that you can give them a, a, a leave pass for, for what they, for their behavior, but instead so you can have really clear values and boundaries so that people aren't trampling all over you like they, they may have done previously. That's, that's a great that's description, right. Dixie. Yeah. Um, now, I know for anyone who's had to step into that role from a young age like you described with your mum from the age of like mm -hmm. seven or eight, becomes a pattern of feeling responsible for other people. Mm. Does that still show up for you now that, that there are times where you get too drawn into what, how much you need to give to other people when perhaps you should be giving to yourself? Because I know that's very much a thing that I can still grapple with at times having, having taken on that sort of role myself of that responsibility for how people are feeling. Life is a constant battle of trying to balance out my one of my own core values being of helpfulness yeah. um, with that feeling every now and then of needing to say, not my circus, not my monkeys walk away. So <laughs> so sometimes it's a constant battle. The, the, the feeling of responsibility for other people, the older I get, the more I'm willing and able to... Uh, step aside from that responsibility and focus on my own business and my own family and my own needs and, and those that, um, for want of a better way to put it, those who deserve my time and input and value in their lives. 
And so it does get easier. But then there's also been an awful lot of therapy and, and self and personal professional development goes into that as well. Because you can't actually please everybody. You can't save everybody. Um, and so reaching that point of realisation that you are not there to actually be responsible for everybody or for forever is quite liberating. Yeah, well said. When, when um, you were talking about the, um, the mystery illness and the suddenness, um, what showed up in my body uh, was a, a reflection of some real um, frustration, maybe even anger because of all that. Um, is that something that you have like thought about whether like in the immediacy after that or since then about like they, how can they not have known? Like, how can, how can they just say it's a mystery? Like, in everything that we know, how can that be the case? Um, well, I guess there's a twofold answer to that. One is that I believe um, that uh, you can easily become quite cynical about the medical profession, and yeah. I did, and am still. Um, through what I experienced then and a few observations over the years since um, and also the way they um, declined to really take real responsibility for some of what happened then. Yeah, right. Um, but I also think that uh, he believed that this was his time. Mm. And I, I say that because we had this uh, interesting thing. Uh, a few months before he passed away, um, two things happened, which both seemed maybe insignificant, but in hindsight were quite significant to his own belief about what was going on at a subconscious level. One was that we had a tui, which is a beautiful bird, uh, fly into the house. And in Maori uh, legend here in New Zealand, uh, if a tui flies into the, sorry, fantail, if a fantail flies into the house, it's a sign of significant change and often people think that that also means death mm. so he was home one day and i was out and a fantail flew in the house and he was really freaked out about it because i didn't even know about that legend at the time but he was quite freaked out about it at the time so we right. put that to rest and that was fine um but that had happened only five months earlier as it turned out and the other thing was was that we'd been sitting down watching a tv show at, um, where there was a, a scene where this old guy um, had to sit there as his wife passed away in, in the, the, the episode. And I remember him looking at me and saying, oh, my God, I hope I go first because I don't think I'll be the one left behind. And I remember we just sat and talked about it and, you know, we had a bit of a, oh, no, that's okay. It might have been around the same time that the, the fantail thing happened. But I remembered that had happened a few months earlier as well. And so when he then got sick, whether he at some level created that or manifested that or remembered that that was his time, I don't know. But I know that he impacted on a lot of people in a really positive way and that there was a lot of people changed certain things in, in their lives as a result of him going. You know, people got mm. divorced, they got engaged, they had more babies, they went through IVF again, they, they you know, made changes, they retired earlier, they, they did all sorts of things. Ed was off this line. He was young, fit and healthy at the age of 40. So he yeah. had a lot of impact, not just on my own direct family. Um, and then there's the other part of it where uh, you, you talk about anger, um, I can remember at times, you know, wintry nights, picking up the kids from, you know, daycare and school and getting home and it's dark and it's cold and the house needs to be, you know, the fire needs to be lit and the kindling needs to be chopped and you put the baby inside and you tell the older brother to look after him while you go outside and you chop kindling and you're literally swinging the axe thinking, you bastard, you're supposed to be here, you bastard, you know, how could you have done this, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you're swinging the axe, <laughs> literally. Yeah. And yeah. so you have those moments where you are very, you know, it's part of grieving. You get angry about, well, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I expected. I want my life back. And yeah. that's a really common part of grieving as well. And however that sort of unfolds, you have to honour that part um, and, and step into it and then laugh about it. Yeah, laugh about it. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Dixie, a lot of the work you do is around helping people to share their story, particularly through the, how that's going to help them with their business. Mm. What I'd love to hear from you is you mentioned before, I, I jotted down what, something you said. You said um, finding out who you are and who you want to be. Who are you outside of the business that you have and who do you want to be? Oh, that's such a big question. I didn't... Um, who am I? I am a creative, special spiritual being who is here to help other people figure out what they need to figure out and then love how it. to make that important for others. <laughs> I love it. Great answer. And I'm, and I'm guided constantly to do that and guided constantly... Uh, the people who turn up in my life are, are constantly part of that. So I trust in it now. Um, and who do I want to be? I want to keep doing what I'm doing to help other people to figure out what they're doing and how they're going to make it matter to others. And I'm really good at it. And it's taken me a long time to be able to sit and say, you know what, I'm really good at it because I love it. And because I get to work with the most amazing people in the world who yeah. have got significant something going on in all kinds of different ways. And so this is what I get to do every day. So good. I, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure whether you'd be able to answer that so succinctly, but that was brilliant. And to me, it's, again, it's, um, it's highlighting your body of work, not just around knowing that you need to work on self first, but in your ability to articulate that for help other people articulate that um, because it's how you find your own story, right? Like I've, yeah. I've for the longest time grappled with how to tell my story and, and what were the significant parts. But of course, as I've grappled with that for 10 years, you get really good at helping other people because you can identify the gaps, right? Well, you teach what you most need to learn. <laughs> hundred percent hundred percent i say it to, to people all the time it's like like it's just not that's when imposter syndrome shows up for most people right is they go oh yeah but who am i it's like no no that's exactly who people want to learn from someone who's who lived you? it yeah you've yeah. lived it uh fantastic um all right, so Dixie, please do share with the listeners what it is that you do in, in a bit more detail so that they know and, um, and where people can find you. Thank you. Um, well, what I do is what I'm, what I'm special at is helping people to unpack what their stories are and make sense of it. So instead of just sitting down and writing a book, I help them to unravel all of the jumbled information in their heads get it into a semblance of a strong plan so that they can write that and share it across multiple stages. So whether that stage is, um, you know, speaking or, you know, coaching, working with people one-on-one, -on -one, how do they make that wisdom, that legacy of wisdom that they have matter and how do they share it? So I help them to unravel it and write great books because everything comes back to starting with the book because that's a great plan. And then I work with them to ensure that they go successfully from the pages to the stages, whatever those stages are, and market them and make them magnificent in their own industries or fields. Love so it. Pages, pages to the stages. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, is there any other message you would love to pass on to people before you go, Dixie? Anyone else who's maybe battling with depression or grief or, or anything? Get help. Talk to someone who has walked in your shoes. You know, I, it took me a long time to find someone. I mean, I was, I was 31 years of age, 32 when, when uh, my younger son was then born. I didn't know any other people who had gone through that journey, including that, you know, being pregnant until 18 years later. But I definitely, so that was quite confronting at that time. But for a couple of years, I remember ringing my insurance broker about three years later and, and asking him whether I was covered for um, having a nervous breakdown because I wanted so desperately to have one and I knew I needed to cover the income. 
And I know that sounds insane, but my brain at that time was thinking, I haven't been able to talk to anyone else who understands the first thing about what I'm doing. I just need to take a break and go and find someone. And so I finally found someone who was written up in the Women's Weekly uh, magazine who had also been widowed a few years earlier, who was of the same age range and was a parent. And I literally tracked her down and rang her on a Friday night and I said, this is who I am, this is my situation, would you please just talk to me? And I'm emotional just thinking about it actually, strangely, but she, bless her, and I can't remember who it was, just talked to me for about 45 minutes. Yeah. And she said, yeah, I'm here for you. So I have also tried to do that for as many people as I can over the years because being a young widow is a really, really strange place to be. Mm. And it's it's different to losing a, a you know, a child or a, or a sibling or a best friend or, a, or a whatever, or a parent, because that person is the person who's supposed to be there helping you with that stuff. Yeah. And so, and you're still walking around with a wedding ring on your finger and people assume that you're going to, you know, buy the, the whatever and take it home and your husband's going to help you put it together or whatever. So you have to keep walking in this strange space, but you have to be able to find someone who can relate to your journey. So if you're going through that, please find someone who will be a torchbearer and, and hand you the torch and then you can forward, further forward it because that's important. And I think that that's what we all need to do for each other is be the torchbearer. Oh, I love that. So good. Dixie, love this chat. Uh, definitely resonated with a lot of your story. Thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate it and I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I've thought about things I haven't thought about for years in the last hour, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been lovely. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.